take your Bibles and turn to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, we'll read once again verses 1 through 17. Hear now the word of God. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly, what, what, excuse me, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you were, uh, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you must also, so also you must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God stands forever. Amen. You may be seated. Let's pray. Almighty and gracious Father, uh, since our whole salvation depends on our true understanding of your holy word, we pray this morning that you would give us hearts that are free from the cares of this world, hearts that understand your holy word and and turn to you, God, as our only hope. We thank you and we pray this in your name. Amen. Well, we've been going through a series on sanctification, on what it means to grow uh, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, to become more Christ-like. There's all these different terminologies we use. The, the theme of our church for this year is devoted to God. And that's really what we're talking about, what it means to, to be Christ and to live in Him. And so we've been going through various passages, but the last several weeks we've been going through sort of a mini-series in and of itself in Colossians chapter 3 as we looked at uh, various things. Uh, first of all, in verses 1 through 4, the new identity that we have in Jesus Christ. When we come to faith in Jesus Christ, if we truly are saved by Him and not just giving lip service, then we are made new creatures in Jesus Christ. I like the way one person put it. They said, we are new, we're not refurbished. You know, you go to the store and you can get something marked down because it's 
refurbished. But that's not what a Christian is. They are given a new mindset, a love for God rather than a love for themselves. There is a conversion to Christ, and then that conversion is a transformation. It is a new life. But as, as much as we've been given this new life in Christ, we do still struggle with sin. We have, we have to deal with this indwelling sin that, that, that sort of plagues us. And that's what we looked at in verses 5 through 11, and how we need to act de decisively to, to grow into maturity. There's sort of an urgency you see in verses 5 and 8 and 9 to put to death the sin that, that indwells us, that we need to starve our sin of opportunity. We need to oppose our sin universally, and we need to develop the graces in our lives that act contrary to our sin. Uh, you might recall that I quoted Ed Welch, who is a biblical counselor, and, and uh, you know he deals with a lot of people that are, are struggling with sin. And, and he made a comment that's very apropos, I think, and unfortunately too often describes us as Christians in our view of sin. And he said this, he said, usually when we pray for God to take away temptation, that is towards sin, he said, we want God to zap it away while we sit there and play footsie with it. <laughs> right? But he says we need to be violent with our sin. We need to be radical in regards to our sin and, and dealing with that. So while we are transformed, we are constantly in battle with our sin. But I, I think the illustration that uh, Dr. A.J. Gordon, who is uh, the founder of what's now become Gordon-Conwell Seminary and, and College, he, he made the observation. He said, you know, he says, I sometimes look out uh, at, at the beautiful creation in the fall or the autumn time of the year. And he goes, I see the leaves falling from the tree. And it seems like there's always this, you know, one, two, maybe three leaves that just hang on for dear life. Right. And they don't fall. And then winter comes, and the winter storms blow, and those leaves blow, but they don't ever let go, and they just seem to hang on forever and ever and ever. And he said, it's not until the springtime when the sap, the, the life, begins to flow through that tree, that that life pushes, it pushes those leaves off because of this newness of life that comes to this tree, and then those leaves finally have to give way. Now, that's a picture of the Christian life. The, the, as Christians, we have the dead leaves of our old life that just sort of hang on, and that's what we're doing battle with. And they hang on as, as, we, uh, as the storms of our resolution and our self-effort, as we do everything we can to try to figure out how to put to death this sin. You know, but they are really only finally pushed off by the rising tide of eternal life that flows in us through Jesus Christ. Amen? That's really where our hope is. Not what we can do, but what Christ has done in us. Uh, and Sinclair Ferguson made the point. He said, no one has made progress in the mortification or the putting to death of sin who has not simultaneously made progress in putting on the graces of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we must never forget that. You see, the putting to death of sin, the, the putting off of the old man, the old life, whatever you want to call it, whatever terms you want to, to talk about, is not the whole of sanctification. As Presbyterians, we talk a lot about putting to get death sin. You know, because it is an essential ingredient. And oftentimes in the church today, 
you know, the church is not so concerned about that. Christians are not so concerned about that. So it is something that we should be made aware of. But we must understand that there is more to our sanctification because we are in Christ who has died to sin. We put off that for which Christ has died for us. Yes, but Paul goes on and he says, begins to talk about putting on or clothing ourselves with all that Christ is, with his grace and with his resurrection power. Um, we, we are to live in Christ. As a matter of fact, if I were to, to come up with a, a subtitle for my sermon today, that's what it would be, living in Christ. And that's what we're talking about as believers. And when it comes to living out the gospel, you know, you can sort of say clothes makes the man or clothes makes the person, right? We look at somebody who's well-dressed and we're like, wow, that's a sharp person. You know, and it's sort of like that for Christians. If you are a new person in Christ, having died to the old life, having been buried in Christ's tomb, having been raised with Him in newness of life and ascended with Him, and your, your true life is hidden with Him in Christ, as Paul talks about here in Colossians 3, then live as though these things are true of you. And the reason I say that is because they are true of you. You see, we forget oftentimes as Christians that the things that are unseen are more true than the things that are seen. You know, we, we see the things that we can touch and we sometimes fall into the mindset of the world that because I can experience this, this is true. And sometimes we can think, well, but those things we can't see, so maybe they're not so true. And that's just, it's, it's just wrong. There's a reality of things that we cannot see. And so Paul says here to these Christians, look guys, don't walk around in soiled garments. Don't walk around in spiritual rags. Your clothes are all tattered. Your life is, you know, you're, as a Christian, you're not just barely hanging on. You're not just like, well, I just hope I can make it through Jesus. He said, you've been given a new identity and your new identity requires a new wardrobe. It requires a new lifestyle. And so Paul presents us with just a, a whole catalog of clothing that's appropriate for the Christian life. Look at verse 12. Put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. You see, everything that he mentions in this verse in one way or another is a description of Jesus Christ himself. But before we dig into that, the clothes closet, and we sort of look at what are these different things all about, and what does that look in life and the life of a believer, you know, Paul sort of stops, and he gives us the motivation to change our clothing or our lifestyle. This is what he said at the beginning of verse 12. Put on then as chosen ones, holy and beloved. He said, let me tell you who you are. Let me tell you what God has done for you. And, and he first of all says that we are chosen. We are elect. Now, uh, God has always chosen his people. And if you don't believe me, go back to the Old Testament. You know, Abraham, or Abram at the time, he was called, wasn't really seeking God. He was just sort of traveling through life. And God came to him. And God set apart Abraham and his family... And set his affection upon that family. Well, that family then eventually grew into the nation of Israel. Okay? 
And this is what God says about Israel. You can look at Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy 7, 7. And also read verse 8. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. You see, God set his heart upon Israel, not because he looked down the corridors of time and he saw that Israel was going, it was, he was going to, Israel was going to be a certain kind of nation or, or because Israel was going to choose God, but rather God set his affection upon them because he loved them. That's why he chose them, because he loved them. And to keep his promise that he made to Abraham as he chose him. And then in the New Testament, we see the same thing happening. Because God deals with his people in the same way, both in the Old and the New Testament. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 4. Paul's writing to the Ephesians church, and it's really sort of a circular letter, so it was a letter to be passed around to the different churches. And Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him that is in Christ before the foundation of the world. You see, he chose us. We didn't choose him. He chose us even before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. So the, the first principle of the gospel that we need to be reminded is that unless God had set his love upon us, really long before, uh, we would never have turned to him. And he did. He set his affections upon us long before we turned to him and, and, and before we came to Christ. Because Romans chapter 3, verse 11 says, No one seeks God. And so his choice of us preceded our choice of him. He, he loved us before we loved him. He had compassion on us before we showed any interest in trusting him. He's been kind to us and he's been gentle to us and he's shown us divine meekness in Christ. He's been patient with us. And no wonder then that God's chosen people should react the same way to others that are around them. To think that God set his affection on us and showing his love for us, um, just think about Romans 5, 8 that says that he set his love he, excuse me, that his, he showed us his love for us and that while we were still sinners, and then in verse 10 it even says we were enemies of God, Christ died for us. So think the doctrine of election, um, you know, is a beautiful thing. It's very humbling to think that God would love me that he would choose me because there's nothing in me that deserves that. Now, some people will argue and they'll, 
they'll say, well, you know, the problem with the doctrine of election is that it would lead a person to simply living their life any way that they choose to do so because they know they're elect, so they can just do whatever they want. And if, if we do so, I'll just tell you this, we're not thinking biblically, right? That's not how the Bible portrays it. Over and over again, the scripture makes it clear that the knowledge of our election in Christ provides us with a powerful motivation to live godly lives. And that's what Paul says in Romans, you know, 6, 7, and 8, right? As he, he's talking about that. He goes, I understand some people may think about that, but if you have truly come to faith in Jesus Christ, if you know him for what he is, and if you have experienced his great love, there is a, his election is so humbling. And Paul says in Ephesians 1 that God chose us that we should be holy and blameless before him. So Paul's saying, since you have in principle taken Christ into your hearts, he said, therefore, actually be in practice what you have professed to be. And so that's what I want us to look at is our first point is the practice of this new life in verses 12 through 14. What, is, what does this new life look like? And Paul says here that we are to permanently put on these virtues. Put on then as God's chosen one. So we, we put on these clothing. Kids, it's not like your clothes that you put on in the daytime and you play in them and then you take your clothes off at night and you put on your pajamas and you go to bed. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying when you put these clothes on, they are a part of you. This is what it looks like. And Paul presents these virtues here in the, our text in, in three sets of twos. They sort of go together, followed by one virtue that, that sort of wraps them all up, as we'll see. The first thing he talks about is the first two virtues are compassion and kindness. And these two virtues place our focus upon others rather than ourselves. I mean, you think about it. Before you come to faith in Jesus Christ, when you are dead in your sins, who's numeral uno in your life? Me! Self! I want to please me. I want to do what I want to do. Now, I might be kind to other people, but it might be to make me feel better. You know, but there's always sort of this selfish motivation. We're not necessarily living for someone else and definitely not living for God's glory, but we're living for ourselves. But compassion and kindness really turns our focus from self to others. It, it means compassion means having a tender heart towards others, as Christ, who is our sympathetic high priest, has towards the afflicted. When others are sick or distressed, uh, we show compassion through tenderness and understanding. When others are, are hurting physically, emotionally, or spiritually, uh, we have that, that heart of compassion, brothers and sisters. That's what we're called to. When you see those around you who are suffering, are you led to such compassion? As, as you read about those who have died in the earthquake in Syria and Turkey, does, does that just does lead you to go before the Lord in prayer and, and pray on their behalf? As you think about what Rob and Carrie have gone through and what they are going through, is there a sense where you are led uh, to, to just be compassionate towards them? Not only to pray for them, yes, do that, but maybe just to think, what would it be like to go through this? You know, maybe I'll pick up the phone and give them a call and see how they're doing. Uh, or maybe you're more of a note writer and you just want to write a quick note and drop it in the mail. 
and just say, hey, we love you guys, we're praying for you, whatever it might be. You know, we, there's that sense of compassion as we're thinking about others. Then there's kindness. Now, kindness is more broad than compassion. It's, it's showing goodness to others who are distressed and suffering, but in all times, in all situations, not just in extreme times and situations. Kindness is a, a fundamental ingredient, obviously, of a good relationship. It's, it's made up of a, a lot of small acts, daily acts, such as offering prayer for each other, but asking each other how you're doing, just, just smiling, just being there, being uh, kind towards others. These virtues, obviously, are necessary for good relationships within the church of Jesus Christ. They, they place us beside each other and cultivate a loving closeness to one another. So if, as we as a congregation continue to love one another, uh, we will need to grow in compassion and kindness that we might continue to do so, especially as we're growing numerically and, and bringing more people into our fold that, that we are being compassionate towards one another. But also he talks about the next two virtues are humility and meekness. Humility and meekness, if, if the other uh, causes us to think about others, then these two virtues place us below others. It places us below others. Now I know in our culture that doesn't sound right. You know, we want to try to get ahead. We want to like, you know, scratch our way to the top. We want to sort of be over others. But that's not how Christ, that's not his mindset. And so he says to be humble. There's probably no uh, virtue more important in Christian living than that. When Augustine was asked, what are the three greatest virtues needed for Christian living? He answered, humility, humility, and humility, right? Now we're used to that with real estate, right? Location, location, location. Well, next time you think about real estate, think humility, 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 okay? That's what we're called to in Jesus Christ, to have that posture of humility. Uh, that virtue is essential in relationships with others. I mean, think about it. Most relational problems start by looking down on another person. Now, we may not consciously think that we're looking down upon them, but uh, oftentimes we are even when we don't realize it. Uh, while most relational joys start as we look up and we exalt others. You know, you may have heard it said that a good marriage is where both partners feel that like they got the good end of the deal, right? And, and there's a lot of truth to that, you know? As you look at that, you go, wow, Lord, I cannot believe you gave me such a wonderful spouse as that. When both spouses are saying that, that's a good marriage, right? But that's also a good church, when people are saying that about each other, as they look around and say, Lord, I cannot believe that you let me go to the same church as so-and-so or so-and-so. You know, that, that's just awesome. Uh, you know, we must be humbled like Christ. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 and 7, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. You see, whenever we find ourselves in conflict with one another, whether it's in the home, whether it's at work, whether it's in the church, wherever it might be, we must remember, especially, that uh, we as Christians struggle with sin. Everybody struggles with sin. 
uh, both ourselves and even the person we're having the conflict with struggles with sin. And you go, well, duh, Pastor Rick, I understand that. Yeah, I don't think we remember that, though, in the midst of the conflict, do we? Because what do we usually do whenever we're having conflict with someone? We begin to enumerate, we begin to create this list in our heads of all the ways that the person that we're in conflict with has sinned against us, do we not? And we, we, we become fixated upon their sin and the things that they are doing and we're just more and more and more seeking to justify ourselves. And what does that do? That just drives us farther apart. But you see, the mind of Christ is as we examine our own hearts in the midst of that. And we might see the sins of others. I will guarantee you, you will see the other person's sin. But also, if you stop and say, Oh Lord, search my heart, try me. See if there be any anxious way in me. Lord, is there any way that I am sinning in the midst of all of this and bringing this conflict on. And as we come with that sense of humility, yeah, we'll see their sin, but we'll see our sin as well. So we must therefore refrain from trampling upon each other and instead lift each other up. So we bow before each other, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, submitting to one another out of reference for Christ. That's the posture that we are to have, to put ourselves below others. Now, if you're like me, brothers and sisters, you got to pray that you can stay there every day because I keep wanting to pop myself up above other people, right? And so I have to keep saying, Lord, keep me down. Keep me down. Humble me. Keep me where I need to be, Lord. But then he also talks about meekness. Now, we oftentimes think of meekness as, as weakness or being spineless, uh, but that's not true. Meekness actually is the willingness to suffer rather than to inflict suffering upon others. It's a willingness to suffer rather than inflict suffering on others. Meekness, and uh, we are to have this meekness in Christ's strength, putting others' needs above our own. And then he goes on to talk about patience and forgiveness, uh, or bearing with one another, as, as he says. And what this does is it keeps us connected to each other. Because the reality is we are going to sin with one, against one another, right? Well, we, we are battling with our flesh. We are seeking to put to death that sin. We, you know, we're praying that the Lord works in us in such a way that we're thinking about others. We're putting ourselves below one another. But I will just tell you, it won't happen 24-7. And we will sin against one another and we will hurt one another. And what sin does is it drives us apart. It, it gets us farther and farther and farther apart. If reconciliation brings us close, sin drives us apart. And so uh, to bear with one another is to hold out <laughs> under aggravation and injustice, not giving way to resentment or retaliation. I mean, how patient Christ was in all his sufferings. How long-suffering he was and is, actually, in bearing with our sins. So let him be your pattern in your relationship. When something or someone does provoke you, wait before you speak. Be swift to hear and slow to speak. Look to the Lord Jesus Christ and say, God, help me to love this person, to be patient and forgiving. We must also for, forbear and forgive like Christ in verse 13. Forgiveness is uh, releasing the person who has sinned against us from the debt they owe us. Have you ever thought about that? 
When someone sins against you and wrongs you, they owe you something because they sinned against you, right? Well, who's going to pay that debt? Well, our human nature is we want the person who sinned against us to pay that debt, right? We want them to somehow suffer. We want them to somehow pay. But forgiveness says this. Forgiveness says, you know, you have sinned against me and you actually owe me something. So I'm acknowledging that does happen. But what I'm telling you is I'm releasing you from that debt. You don't know that to me. We're good. Because Christ has forgiven me such a great debt, how should I not forgive you uh, even this lesser debt, right? It's a parable in the Gospel of Matthew, right? The moment you have a complaint against another, we are called to graciously forgive. Bury the matter at once in genuine forgiveness. I like what Spurgeon said. He goes, when you bury a dead dog, he goes, you don't leave its tail sticking up out of the ground. And I thought, man, how often do we do that, right? Somebody sins against us and we're like, oh, well, yeah, we'll forgive you, but we'll keep the tail there. So if you ever do anything else against me, I can pull that dead dog back up and I can show you, (laughs) see what you did. No, bury the tail, put it deep, put it low. A patient, forbearing, forgiving spirit you see squelches quarrels before they catch flame just like psalm 86 5 says for you O lord are good and forgiving abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you and then he wraps up all these virtues with love sort of the capstone of all these virtues not surprising colossians 3 1 corinthians 13 tells us that love is supreme uh, Galatians 5.22, as we look at the list of the Spirit, you know, love is, is the summation of really all of this. It's because love is the lubricant that enables all these other virtues to function smoothly. And, and so Colossians 3.14 literally says, above all these things, have the love. Have the love. The steady, intelligent, purposeful, committed, agape love of God that flows out of faith. And it's this love uh, gives sacrificially without any thought of return. There's there's nothing more beautiful than a loving relationship that flows out of love for Christ. So, you know, what what Paul is saying here is, is that when you find the person who persecutes you or the person who wrongs you or the person who hassles you, I'm not I don't care whether they're believers or unbelievers. When you find the the person that wrongs you in some way, then you just need to throw the mantle of humility and love over that sinner and hold on. And in the patience of God, he will vindicate you in the right time. But we need to endure that out of love. Now, can you now begin to see why Paul started out with election and with choosing us? I don't know about you, I don't do well to be underneath other people. I don't always do well to forgive other people. Because the problem that we have, even as believers, is we still struggle with thinking too highly of ourselves. Have you ever thought about that? Why did Paul write that in Romans 12? Because the Romans struggled with that. And they needed to hear that. And guess what? Kirk of the Plain struggles with that. And we wrestle with that. And we think too highly of ourselves. And so... It it is just beautiful that that God says, let me just remind you 
that you are only my child because I have loved you. Not because you're something great, but I have loved you. My love for you is genuine. Okay? And, uh, and so understand that. But likewise, because I have loved you so, I am calling you to love others the same way. And I'm empowering you by the Holy Spirit to be able to do that. So now, brothers and sisters, this clothing is very attractive, but it's not very showy, is it? The world would look at this and they would go, yeah. Okay, it doesn't, it, it doesn't draw attention to itself, but there is another sense in which it is sort of catchy. You know, people see this and they see a person who is humble and patient and forgiving, and, and they are very impressed by that because these are things that are different than the world. And, and, and we need to, brothers and sisters, be praying for the reality of these qualities in our lives. But we, we must step out in faith and seek to love others, submitting ourselves to Christ. And so I want to ask you this morning, do these clothes suit you? No pun intended. Do they suit you? Do, do, they, do, uh, do they fit well on you? And if you say, well, no, not really. Well, perhaps it's because we have never allowed ourselves to be humbled by the knowledge of God's election. And therefore, never fully sense the overwhelming privilege it is to be in Christ. So this is the clothing that Jesus gives us by the power of His Spirit. And then second, uh, He talks about the priorities. So He talks about the practice of the new life. Now He talks to, about the priorities of the new life. And the first thing He talks about is peace. We're called to peace. It's, and, and understand when He says we're called to peace, He's saying this is not extra credit. Okay, This is not an elective subject. This is actually a summons. It's a required course. It's something you're expected to do. You are called to peace. And Paul's not referring to the kind of thing that Christians sometimes talk about. You know, oh, I'm sure this is the right thing to do. I have such a peace about this, right? You hear Christians talk about that all the time. That's not what he's referring to. He's thinking here about Christ's peace serving as a referee or as an umpire for the church. In other words, our life together in Christ, the decisions that we make as a church, the way in which we are shaped as a church fellowship are to be determined according to what will maintain the peace of Christ. Do we ever think about that when we think about what we do within the church? What will best promote the shalom, the peace, the wholeness, the well-being of the gospel here in the life of Kirkland Plains? That's what we want to be focused upon. And that means that we would be willing to deny ourselves and to silence any insistence on getting our own way and having our own personal desires met. Instead, our prayer becomes, Lord, lead us on whatever path will bring most glory to your name and harmony in your fellowship. That's what we need to always have. Now, understand that this is not a peace at any price, okay? We sort of hear that in the world today. Paul's not encouraging us to turn a blind eye to, to sin just so that we can have peace. Nor is he encouraging us to ignore doctrinal confusion or false teaching just to have peace. That's not what he's talking about. But in Christ, we must seek the peace as well as the purity of the church. Uh, we, that's right in your membership vows. Uh, for how can those who do not submit to Christ's peace 
ruling in their hearts claim that despite this, they are at peace with Christ or that they love their brothers and sisters. It's not true. There, there will be this peace. That's what love produces, is peace. It makes a huge difference to the life of the church when everyone knows that the decision that's made is made for the glory of Christ and what will best provide for the peace of the church. Now, how is that going to happen? Well, he says here in verse 16, he said, here, this is what feeds this pursuit of peace. When, the, when you let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. You know, he's just really sort of going back to John 15. You know, John 15, Jesus says, I have cleansed you through the word, abide with me, letting my word abide in you, right? But here he said, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom and singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Well, the parallel passage to this is Ephesians 5, 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the what? The Spirit. He, 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 he likens here the Spirit and the Word, because the Holy Spirit uses the preaching and the teaching of the Word of God to find, to, to, to find deep in the inner recesses of the soul so that the Word of God may get down deep into our very hearts and our beings and address even the very motives that we have. Now, that does come through the reading of the Word and your family worship and in your time, personal worship time and stuff, but there's nothing like the preaching and the teaching of the Word of God. The Holy Spirit causes the Word of Christ to dwell in us richly, changing us and sanctifying us. Now, he also, though, talks about this, not only in the context of preaching and teaching, but even more so about worship in, in song. Uh, I don't know if you ever think about this when you gather with others to worship, but as we sing, I don't know if you ever think about this, as we sing, we are instructing and we are exhorting and encouraging and teaching one another, brothers and sisters, particularly as we sing the psalms. Because we are literally singing the word of God to one another. And so, yes, there is a vertical dimension, and that's the primary dimension of worship, is this vertical. But there is this somewhat horizontal relationship, too, that's going on in worship, too, as well, as we are singing the word of God to one another. And this is one reason why the words to songs are so important, even more so than the music, although the music's important, too. But the words are most important. And it's also the reason that sanctified believers will be singing believers. I get some people sometimes that said, yeah, I just don't like to sing. You know, and I have to say, well, you know, and in a nice way. You know, well, it's really not about you and what you want. You know, it's what Christ has called us to. And he's called us to be singing believers. And, and our singing of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs is therefore our corporate ministry of God's word to one another. And the more the word of Christ fills us by means of the words we sing, and, and as we sing them with understanding, the more we will be able to bless God and encourage others and even strengthen ourselves. Right? It's just beautiful to see the way that Christ works in his church. Now, you want, it, you want me just to sort of bottom line it for you? Look at verse 17. Right? Just do this. Everything you do, do in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you just do that, we're good. 
right? Uh, that means consistent. Everything that we do is consistent with who He is. Consistent with what He would want. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Giving thanks to God the Father through Him. So I, I hope you're seeing as we come to the end of our text today that Paul is just sort of going full circle. You know, he starts out talking about how we have this new identity in Christ and he encourages us to set our hearts on, on heavenly things. And then in verses 5 through 11, he traces the character of the old lifestyle back to idolatry and, and that dwells in our hearts by nature. And, and then... In the, our verses today, he, he's brought us from the pit of our own hearts and our sin to the heights of God's glory and His work that He's doing in our lives. And, and the difference between the old lifestyle and the new lifestyle is the old one is marked by sin and idolatry and self-worship or worship of self. Whereas the new life is marked by the enthronement of Jesus as we worship Him. And of course, the result of that is, is our, it manifests itself in our love to each other as well. And so the corporate result of this as, as for a church is that in our Christian fellowship, the Lord Jesus is all and is recognized to be an all who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so growing in sanctification means understanding that I'm a new person, recognizing the traits in my life, that are inconsistent with that new identity, and then dealing death blows to those things by the graces of the Lord Jesus Christ as I'm growing in Him. And when this is true, then our very presence enhances the lives of other people in the church. And I see this in you guys. I see, that. I see you guys bless each other. I hear you as you talk with one another. And you're like, yeah, I was talking to so-and-so the other day. And there's just such an excitement in your voice as you just like, wow, I'm just so happy to be in church with that person. You know, because the Lord is working through you. And you are blessing as I hear you talk about the things of the Lord. But in addition to that, as we grow in this, outsiders will be attracted to the fellowship which we belong to even if they don't understand why. They'll want to come and they'll want to be part of the Kirk of the Plains just because. They don't know, just because. But we know it's, it's because the Holy Church is attracting them as the divine magnet that it's supposed to be. That's what the church is supposed to be. You hear in the news today, people are leaving churches. And that's true. To some degree, they are. But as the church is the church as Christ has saved it to be, it actually will be a magnet, not that repels, but that attracts. And people will come. And, and how different this is from the, the individualism and the self-interest and the narcissism that we see so much in our culture today. You know, the church is in, in sharp contrast. The real success, the gospel effect, releases us from this self-obsession and our self-interest. And instead, it allows us to serve Christ and, and to serve others. And when this is true, our fellowship becomes a powerful expression of the, of the gospel. It comes wonderfully attractive and compelling. And so let 
the Lord do his work in our midst, brothers and sisters. Amen? Amen. That he might continue to, to draw in those that he is saving and he may bring glory to his name. Let's take just a, a few moments and just meditate upon this word that we heard preached this morning and, and just re respond to the Lord silently in an appropriate fashion. Heavenly Father, we, th we thank you so much as we have heard the Word of God preached today. It just, it just stirs our hearts to, to uh, excitement because, Lord, if we're really honest with ourselves, I think that sometimes we can, if we have to be really honest, we will have to admit that sometimes we're, when we're in, in the midst of the battle with sin, that maybe we too often sort of lay down the spiritual weapons that we have and we pick up earthly weapons and we, we seek to fight the battle with that. And so, Lord, we're trying to knock those last leaves off the tree with all of our efforts that we can. And we just fail and we are discouraged. But, Lord, we have heard this morning that you were at work in us in a mighty and powerful way. And so we can be expectant people looking for the Holy Spirit to, to work in our lives uh, to put off the old man and to put on the new man, uh, to be reminded of our identity in Christ. Oh, Lord, make this a reality. And I pray for any, Lord, that may, may be listening this morning that, that doesn't know you, doesn't, doesn't know this peace, this joy, this, uh, this love that, that you have shown to us. Oh, God, may they come to you, we pray. Amen.